All right, let's get started this morning. This is our last session of this class. <laughs> One, two, three, eyes on me. <laughs> well, it doesn't work as well on adults, I guess. Well, I should try it when I'm trying to start church. Yeah. All right, so this is our last session in this series on mental illness. Uh, today we're specifically talking about how we can help people who are struggling with mental illness. Our class has uh, probably shrunk a lot because that new members class is gigantic. And I think a lot of them were in here. Uh, so I think there's like 30 people in the new members class. Um, so. We're gonna talk specifically this morning about helping people who are struggling with mental illness. And really, I think one of the key points we've made throughout this is that this label of struggling with mental illness as being something that puts someone in a category entirely different from everyone else is probably not actually helpful, right? So a person with anxiety is also known as a person. Now, for some people, that anxiety is far more intense than others in very meaningful ways. So I'm not trying to dismiss the anxiety of the person who struggles deeply with it, but they are not categorically different. They are different by degree, okay? So uh, basically then, that means that how do you help people who struggle with mental illness should perhaps better be phrased, how do you help people? Uh, because to some degree or another, we all struggle with our mind not functioning as it should. That's just being part of the fallen human race. Uh, so as we talk about um, helping people, this is actually the last half of, I think, lecture three that we didn't get to. And then I just kind of like re thought it fit better to reorder it and put it here at the end. Um, so I had this quote before, and I still think it's a good quote, so I'm going to read it again because it applies today as well. I would not give a fig for simplicity of this side of complexity, but I would give my life for the simplicity on the other side of complexity. In order to make things simple, you must understand them in their complexity first. And so as one of the foundations of how we help people who struggle, is we need to understand the complexity of their struggle. The solution is actually quite simple often, but in order to provide a simple solution, we have to understand the complexities of the problem. So we must get to know people. We should remember that the person, uh, that there is a person at the heart of any trouble. Mental health issues, particularly those that get these big diagnoses are scary and they are intimidating. Right? When, and that's, I think, one of the costs of our diagnostic society where, it's so, where we're so quick to diagnose mental illness is that it feels like they are other. They are someone who is not for me to help. They are someone for the professionals to help. And I think throughout this, I've been pretty clear that there's places for professionals to be engaged in help. But there is no place for me not to be engaged in help. Right? There might be someone else who needs to come alongside but I should not absent myself from someone's struggle just because their struggle is hard for me to understand. Mental health issues are uh, scary and intimidating because they are complex. They're complex. There's a lot going on. 
there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of ways that different symptoms interact with one another. And some of them manifest themselves in really hard ways to understand. Where uh, you, you deal with a certain struggle and you're like, how much of this is the natural result of this person's condition versus the result of this person's sinning, right? And we can really struggle with the complexities of navigating that fine line and understanding what is a sin issue? What isn't a sin issue? What's a situation versus what's a, a sin? That's really hard to figure out. When you get into these mental health things, that complexity can make us really uneasy. They're also unfamiliar. So I have a pretty good understanding of certain emotional distress because I feel certain types of emotional distress. Like there are other types that I just don't resonate with. Like I don't understand being worried about your weight in a way that's deeply problematic for you. That's, that's not something that connects with either the way my body works or the way my mind works, right? It's probably a mixture of both. And so it's easy for that to feel really foreign and me to be like, well then, Stop. Like just, I don't know if you guys have seen the Bob Newhart skit, right? Where he's a therapist and the, the essence of his therapy is stop it. Just stop it. Don't do that anymore. That's bad. Uh, that's really easy for me to do with something like a body image issue because it's not something that resonates with me. With anxiety, well, that, that resonates with me. <laughs> anxiety resonates with me. I'm like, oh, Oh, you mean that feeling in the middle of the night when you wake up and you can't breathe and you're in complete panic and your wife can sleep through anything next to you and you're like having a heart attack and she's just, ow. Like, <laughs> it's never happened. Completely hypothetical. And like, but that, that resonates with me in a way that makes me desire to have that conversation where I might not have the desire to have that conversation about a body image issue, right? There, there might be some things that um, just don't connect with us. And when you get into these areas of serious mental health issues, there's a lot of things that just don't connect with us. Like it just doesn't resonate with our experience. And so we're, we're, we push them away. Like that's not something that I, I want to or am able to deal with. But a proper response to mental illness is dependent on knowing our friend who is troubled. And this is where we get through the simplicity, uh, being over simple, to dealing with complexity, to getting to a place where we can provide simple help, is understanding that we are complex creatures. Everything is not as it appears the first time you talk to someone. It is really easy to make a snap judgment and jump over a whole lot of process of getting to know someone. I struggle with that when I'm counseling because I'm a pretty intuitive person. Like I, I tend to read pretty quick, like read a situation, read a person pretty quick, and I'm generally good at it. That means that I rely on it, which means that generally good is not good enough because there are times when I'm wrong because I'm skipping the complexities of the situation being like, oh yeah, I've seen this before. And so therefore, I already know what's going to happen. So good, we took care of this. And now we can skip the getting to know you part and just get to the me telling you how to fix everything part. And that's not loving, it's not helpful, it's not kind. And it doesn't, 
it just doesn't work because we're missing out on the complexities. What are some of these complexities? There are lots of influences on our heart. Our body influences us, right? It can be things as simple as not getting enough sleep, not eating a balanced diet. It can be things as, as different, as complex as whatever happens in the brain of a depressed person. I just read a study that I think your wife shared about being pretty clear that it's not chemical imbalance like we talk about, but not clear what it is. And so like, it might be something like that, that even doctors who give their entire life to studying what's going on in our body don't understand. Like it could be uh, a chronic illness that someone's dealing with. Those are all influences on the heart. None of those things are sin in, of themselves. Uh, Lori does not need to repent of her diabetes. Like that's that's not, not a thing that she needs to do. It's not a thing that she can do. You don't need to repent of your hunger. I mean, I guess like maybe if you're struggling with anorexia, you can repent because you didn't eat and you should have eaten. And like, so I guess there's a way in there, but you don't repent of your body craving food. So these are a lot of natural things, but they have an influence on the heart. Uh, Internal factors, like just kind of the things that are going on in our heads, Uh, the way that people think. Like how many of you would consider yourself a analytical person who overthinks things, okay? How many of you would say, thinking? <laughs> Why would I do that, right? Now, obviously that's, a, that's, that's making that person look bad, but there's a big difference between my wife and I in this area, right? Like I will think long and hard and she will helpfully tell me, stop thinking. And I'm like, really? Like, really? That, that's not gonna work. Like, Keeping yourself up because you're thinking so much. So stop thinking. Go to sleep. That's the problem, not the solution, right? So it's just a completely different way of of functioning, right? And so the way that we think has an effect on us. And I don't know that it's always something that needs to be repented of. Like that can be a sin, right? Like it can be faithlessness. I don't think it's a sin to be someone who's more prone to analyze things versus someone who's more prone to, to go off intuition, like, it's not a sin issue. It's just a difference. It's an influence on us. Relationships have tremendous influence on you. Your relationships with coworkers, bosses, family members, parents from the... Well, I mean, parents are family members. Uh, your, your relationship with all these different people is going to have an effect on you. And how often have you done something and been like, oh, man, that was my dad or that was my mom, right? We have these sorts of influences, these, these ways of talking. Uh, I've used this illustration before, but in uh, the Hornic line, we have this thing that we call the voice. The voice is a tone that sounds very angry and very hostile, but isn't intended to be that way, but it definitely comes across that way. My grandma had it, my dad had it, I have it, Adam has it. <laughs> it's the same across the line. Why? Like sometimes it's sin. Sometimes it's just like that's the tone that you're supposed to use when something is not as it should be. And it just gets developed into you. So that relationship with my parents, I don't think that's biological necessarily. That the tone is biological, but those relationships influence them. If you are abandoned as a child, that has an effect on how you deal with marriage. Like one of the surefire ways to introduce 
uh, tensions into a marriage that lead to divorce is to be really, really afraid of getting divorced. I, it happens all the time. We, you get married and you're like, we just don't want to get divorced. That's a good commitment. It's better to just like not think about getting divorced. Like it's a whole lot better to just be like, well, we're not going to get divorced, so we just got to solve these problems. But when you come in and you're like, I'm a child of divorce, I'm so afraid that I'm going to get divorced, or I have already was divorced, my previous spouse cheated on me, I'm so afraid that's going to happen again. That anxiety stirs up tension in the marriage. Every little problem can't get overlooked because this is probably the first step on the path to divorce. And you're just fighting so deeply against this idea of divorce that the marriage becomes unhealthy, unhappy, and it leads it to a place where that is much more likely to happen because you're obsessed with it, right? And that often is a product of past, whether it's parents' divorce or previous marriages uh, with the spouses in a marriage, because that influence is there. Is it a sin to be from a home where the parents are divorced? No. Might it be a sin for you to have been divorced? Yes. Might you have dealt with that sin and not somehow magically become undivorced? Yeah. So like the, the sin of divorce may have happened in the past, but it's not a sin that's happening now. It's not something you can repent of now. It's simply the air that you breathe. Societal influence. What does our society think we're supposed to be? That has a tremendous effect on our mindset. Like that has a tremendous effect on our heart. I'm supposed to look like this. I'm supposed to do that. I'm supposed to drive this car, live in that house. And the pressure of societal expectations has a factor on my heart. Is society's expectation a sin I must repent of? No, might be a sin that society should repent of. But like, I don't need to repent for living in a country that's materialistic. I just live here. But does the materialistic nature of American society have an effect on my soul? Absolutely, right? So there's these influences. Then there's also, and I don't want to be too spooky here, but there's spiritual warfare. And we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers. There is a spiritual component to our heart, right? Like the spiritual component of our body is spiritual. And so there's going to be a spiritual warfare. Whether that means that there's little demons shooting invisible darts at you or not is not the point of spiritual warfare. There is a battle for our soul. And it's not a battle where we're the only participant fighting against ourselves. And I think that in our cessationist, anti-spooky kind of church like we are, we can get the sense that we battle only against ourselves and our sin because demons are weird. And so they probably don't exist, right? And none of us would actually say that because the Bible says they exist, but do you really feel like they exist? Let's be honest. Anytime you hear someone tell a crazy story about a demon, you're a little bit like, huh, okay, that's interesting. And what substance were you using at that time, right? Like we, we automatically minimize it. And I don't know that all those stories are legitimate stories of demonic influence. I think Satan has a much easier path than like crazy demon stuff to influence the hearts of people. Um, I don't know if anyone's ever read uh, the book Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Um, really fascinating book where it's letters from a demon to his nephew demon trying to teach him how to tempt people better. And it's a really insightful look at the ways that our hearts are prone to be tempted. Um, it's, a, it's a good book uh, by C.S. Lewis. And so all of these things 
have an effect on us. And they have effect on our heart, the part of us that lives before God. So our heart is lived before God. It's that relationship with God. And so in all of these situations, all of these influences come on us, we respond in a way that honors or dishonors God. We respond with righteousness, we respond with sin. But to truly help someone respond with righteousness instead of with sin, we must work to understand the influences that they're responding to, rather than just be like, don't sin. All right, counseling over. Solve the issue, don't sin. We, don't, we want to know why and how. And this is not something that's reserved for those who have the most advanced knowledge of the human soul or the Bible. It is reserved for people who care enough about others to know them and walk alongside them. Then when all these influences come through our heart, they're expressed in actions, in affections, thoughts. They're expressed outwardly. We tend to think only of the outward things. We might get to the heart and very often skip all of the influences, all of the why questions, all the hard get to know you sort of stuff. And just try and say, hey, don't do this. And so when, when I criticize the slap a Bible verse on it and call me in the morning model of helping people, this is where that falls short. Because you don't actually know what the struggle in that person's soul is. You know what it looks like. You, know, you see some things, but you don't know what's actually happening. So I have a, a diagram on the back page that I think illustrates this. We have all of this situation around us that presses in on our heart and then works itself out in actions, affections, and thoughts. And we cannot just focus on actions, affections, and thoughts. Nor should we be like the secular psychologist who focuses only on external factors, body, mind, uh, society, things like that. We have to balance that out. We need to understand that these are influences on the heart that lead to actions. All the components are important. So consider this here. And let's take a, something that's in the DSM-5 and let's consider what are the influences that could be exerted on an individual that would lead to the actions that are diagnosed in the DSM, okay? So we're gonna talk about anorexia, right? So anorexia, I think most people are familiar with it. It's a body image issue so severe that people do not eat. They starve themselves to become ever more skinny to the point of, of death at times. It's a, it's a dangerous illness, whether death because of malnutrition or suicide or the side effects of malnutrition, all right? So thinking through this stuff, what are the influences? And understand we're not talking about a real person. We're supposed to be getting to know the person. So every person's not gonna have the same influences. What are the influences that could lead to that sort of issue in any of these, any of these categories? Okay, so you look in a magazine, you see a picture of a girl minus 10% because of Photoshop, yes. and like you take the most fit person who already kills themselves to be healthy, or to be healthy might not be the right word, kills themselves to be super fit, and 
then you take 10% off with the photo with Photoshop, right? And that becomes the model, literally model, uh, that becomes the model for what that person's supposed to look like, okay? How else? Okay. Yeah. So how how would that work itself out? Like, how would you see that affecting the child? Uh, a parent constantly commenting on their own image okay. or on the child's image. Right. Both of those, I think, happen a lot. Where mom is constantly talking about how fat she is, daughter grows up thinking, well, I'm skinnier than her, or I, I'm the same size as her. It would be, uh, I'm the same size as her. I must have the same problem, right? Or it just teaches her to have an unhealthy obsession with that issue. So, right, it's not bad to say, you know, I need to go on a diet. Like that's actually probably something that would be good for, what is it, 80% of Americans to, to, to make that recognition. It's not good to obsess about it, okay? What other influences could there be? Oh yeah, and then you also talked about telling the daughter, that, or the, could be a son. It's more common in females, obviously, but it happens in men too. Bullying, okay. So more external pressures from kind of society, friends, absolutely. Okay, thinking. Right, like it is not attractive to be anorexic skinny. It look, it's unsettling, right? But that person looks at herself in the mirror and says, not skinny enough. And everyone else wants to just be like, you'd look better if you gained weight. So why are you, why are you pushing that direction, right? Doesn't have a, a proper view of themselves. Uh, okay, so... Yeah, so we live in a society that has a good focus on health in some ways, also has not the greatest. Like, we need to counterbalance McDonald's somehow. Uh, so we're, we, we have this emphasis on healthy living, gluten-free or vegan or whatever, like any sort of weird diet you wanna have, you can find a community that wants to have the same weird diet as you, right? That's, that's just our society right now. So you can take that, and that might be a good thing. I'm not trying to knock any of those particular diets right now. I would in other circumstances. Uh, but like, uh, like when I'm eating. Uh, so that, that, that kind of good focus on being healthy, that like we actually should be healthy, can be then twisted and taken to extreme. Well, I'm supposed to be careful about my diet, so I should be weighing all my food to the gram. Mm, that's... Not the same thing, but in the individual's mind, it might be. A common one is the rest of their life is really uncontrolled. So food intake is something that they can control. Yeah, control is one of those things that affects so much of what we do that we often miss, right? Like I think in tons and tons of sin struggles, it's a control thing. It's like I can do this thing and I get to do it when I want to do it. Um, anger is in a different way a control thing. Like, I must control the world, and I will stop at nothing to control the people around me. Okay? Control. What happens if we skip conversation with those people and think, oh, yeah, I remember hearing about anorexia once. 
and it's because of this. And then we go and talk to the person and start giving them counsel. What's the cost? Mm-hmm. Could be wrong. Yeah, you could just be wrong. You could even be unhelpfully wrong. Right. right? Like if you come in on that person and you're like, you, you're dealing with anorexia. You really need to make sure you eat enough. You need to keep careful track of your diet. And that person's specific way of being anorexic, anorexic has them weighing every portion to make sure they don't eat an extra ounce of food in a day. Telling them to watch their diet is actually probably unhelpful, right? But you don't know that unless you talk to the person, unless you get to know the person, unless you sort through the complexities. Um, This can be true in like just the little struggles of life. So like if you're counseling someone who loses their job, you might immediately come and be like, they're worried about money. So I'm going to counsel them that money, the money is going to be fine. Like, we'll take care of the money. There's good jobs available, whatever. And that person might not even be thinking about the money. They might have just lost their entire sense of who they are and their identity. And you come and you're like, oh, the money's fine. You're not helping. In fact, you might be hurting. And so we, we come in, we get to know the person, we talk to them, we move towards them. So how do we do that? Well, the word I just said, move towards them. Move towards them. It's a simple metaphor, right? But I think we all understand what I mean there. When there is someone who is off-putting to me, if there is someone who is difficult for me, my natural response is, well, it's going to be weird and awkward if we're talking. So if I can manage to not look like I'm avoiding them, but also avoid them, I can dodge the awkwardness and they won't feel bad, right? Like sometimes we just straight up avoid people in a rude way, but I think a lot more often we're just like, if I talk to them, this is the situation I'm gonna have to deal with. Well, there's someone else I need to talk to. I'll talk to them instead, okay? So instead of moving away, move towards. That's particularly easy to do with these sort of mental health challenges. The more significant the challenge, the more tempting it is to move away instead of move towards. And so if we're continually disciplining ourselves to move towards the person, we're going to be continually disciplining ourselves to know them better, to understand them better. And it's not like we need a list of 18 diagnostic uh, questions that we have to figure out, but we just need to know the person better. And if we move towards them and seek to know the person better, we're we're going to grow in our affection and our love for them. And we're going to grow in our ability to help them because we're going to understand Look, this is a person who feels like they're going to be alone forever. And I can see it's an irrational fear. They don't. And so how can I help them deal with that irrational fear, both spiritually, by comforting them that Christ is always with them? But even more than that, like it's a legitimate fear expressed illegitimately. So being a person who doesn't make them think I'm abandoning them. Right? Like th- those, sorts of, those sorts of things where I move towards them. I know them. I know them as people. I know them as people. How are they like me? You take the most extreme case in a mental health ward in America, and they are more like me than they are different from me. Right? That, that person, by the very fact that they are a person, 
has so much in common with me that matters. There is no, no animal that is more like me than that person. There's something fundamentally different about us and the animals that I share with every person. There's nothing that is more, that more like me than another person. Are some people more like me than other people? Sure. But when it comes down to it, I have much in common with them. So I need to ask those questions. How are they like me? I have pride. I need to repent of sin. I feel lonely. I feel scared. I feel these things. I might not feel them the same way. It might not be debilitating how I feel them, but I do feel them. I am like them. But I also need to be careful to recognize that how they are different from me. I, I, I shouldn't go into every counseling helping situation just trying to fit the person into the box so that I can explain how they think the way that I think. They might be different from me. They're more like me than they're different from me, but they are different. They process things in a different way. I might say something that in a normal situation would be, um, would be reasonable and kind, but to this person comes across super unkind. They are different. And so I need to, to know them. I need to, to walk with them and work with them. Uh, consider the influences on their heart. This is where wisdom comes in, right? That you might not have a Bible verse for everything. And as you try and get to know them, you, you exercise wisdom and getting to know them. You exercise wisdom and hearing from them and understanding what they're saying. Some people are really hard to understand what they're saying. That happens a lot in counseling where it feels like you're on a 10 minute ramble and you've gotten five seconds of content and you don't know which five seconds mattered. <laughs> it's, that can be really hard. Wisdom requires us to engage thoughtfully. Consider those influences and then help them remove bad influences if they can be removed, right? So some bad influences can be removed. Every morning, every, every night that you drink coffee after seven o'clock, you go to bed jittery and you get anxious, you have insomnia and you're miserable for the whole night. Stop drinking coffee after seven. Also repent of your anxiety. Stop drinking coffee after seven. Like, get rid of the bad influence. You don't need to be testing your heart by making everything hard. Be like, man, I just wanna make it really hard to live for Jesus so I know I'm really living for Jesus. No, to get rid of bad influences. But understand, not all negative things, all difficult things can be removed. So respond to difficult influences. And so if you're, you're dealing someone, with someone whose mom has continually reminded them that they are overweight their whole life, you can't get rid of mom, right? Like you can't remove that. Even if you do the like, cut off toxic people thing, uh, which is a whole other issue. Even if you do that, you can't undo 25 years of mom saying that. Like you can't get rid of it. So instead of getting rid of it, you might need to help them be equipped to respond differently. Your mom says that. Let's ask the question, is it true? We know that she says that. We do not know that it's true. So let's instead evaluate the truthfulness of the statement not just that it's been stated. Uh, and so we help them respond to difficult influences. We help them pursue 
positive influences. So we push them to pursue good things. So you need to exercise, or you need to read your Bible, or you need to go to church. Those are all good things to do and should be part of the counseling. But we've got to understand complexities. I've counseled people where like, I got to a point where I'm like, man, you just need to read your Bible less, which is really weird counsel to give. But it's a common way for people who get really obsessive to think they're dealing with their sin. So you've got a husband who's um, just a nightmare with his wife. And you confront him and he's like, man, I, I've been reading my Bible and I just need to read my Bible more. No, you need to stop screaming at your wife. And yes, you should read your Bible. But reading your Bible six hours a day is not the answer to your sin. Like... Sometimes uh, anxiety, uh, prayer becomes just saying what you're anxious about and then putting in Jesus' name, amen, at the end. You're not actually casting your cares on God. You're just making a mental rehearsal of everything you're anxious about. You could do that and not say amen, and it's just anxiety. But if you do the same thing, and it's kind of like pseudo-directed towards Christ, and you call it prayer, you're just being anxious but trying to pretend that you're doing something godly. Now, true dependent prayer is not anxiety, right? So like you understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying you don't pray, but this idea that pursuing a spiritual discipline in a bad way will somehow help is just not not correct. The Bible is not magic. It's powerful, but it's not like a magic potion. It's, it's why I think it's good for kids to have Bible instruction on their level rather than being included in the main service. They're not just going to magically understand the Bible just because they're hearing it. Now, you can talk about the power of the word. The word is powerful. The word understood is powerful. The Holy Spirit works to make it understood and make the word understood active in the heart of the person listening. But I can't go to a church in France, listen to the sermon in French, and be blessed uh, I mean, I guess it might be encouraging to see believers worshiping, but like the content of the sermon is not going to be a blessing to me. The Bible's not magical. And so as we look at studying this stuff, we need to understand that we should push them towards positive influences, but not as some magic trick that's going to solve everything. And then point them to universal hope. Point them to universal hope. So 2 Peter 1.3. 2 Peter One, three. I believe it's in my Bible. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. There's hope. Everything we need to be godly, we already have. So we can push them towards that hope. You guys, you're not, we can tell the sufferer, you are not waiting on a magic solution to this problem in order to please God. You can please God and suffer. And we point them to that universal hope. We point them towards the general gospel promises. We, I mean, I I don't have a bunch of references written down because it's just the whole Bible, right? Like 
you can open any section of scripture basically with someone and read it and find encouragement for their situation, particularly in the Psalms. And just open Psalms and point them to a, a universal hope that's true of the person struggling with bipolar disorder, anorexia, or just having a bad day at work. True of all of them. So point them to it. Point them to it. Um, remind them of specific help. Uh, Psalm 43. There are going to be some things that particularly resonate with people. So Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God. Defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil with me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. There are some very specific situations where that's going to apply really well. Like there are going to be some times when that just lands and provides comfort to the soul. If you're going to be able to connect someone to that psalm at the right time, you have to know your Bible. Right? So point them to specific help means study the Bible all the time because you don't always get to go like, okay, which psalm is right? Let me Google that for you. They probably already Googled it. Uh, but like the, they, and we've all seen the Bible, the Google re- responses that say, what the Bible says about this and 50 verses ripped out of context. Right? Like, they've probably done that. They might have seen these verses. But if you know them, you know the word, and you connect them to the word in a place that is particularly meaningful, you don't have to be an expert on mental health. You don't have to be an expert on ancient Hebrew. You don't have to be an expert on much of anything. Be an expert on the person you're talking to. And know your Bible enough to connect them with real, meaningful Help. Another one, Psalm 6. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of me. And Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. These aren't necessarily particularly about the the content of our lesson, just pointing us to the fact that the Psalms are rich and alive for people who are suffering. And so as we move towards them and know them, we can offer specific help. And then finally, we can help them develop godly responses. 
there might be times where we give people some specific help that's not just like, here's the gospel comfort, here's what the Bible says about this, but we're actually trying to equip them to deal with those things. So I've mentioned cognitive behavioral therapy and the cognitive distortions that uh, CBT talks about. I find that really, really helpful and pointing people to how they're thinking, right? Those aren't Bible. They ring true. They don't have a, the authority of scripture. But as I, as I look at them, like, uh, actually, let me, I should have just pulled them up ahead of time, but I have them all saved on my phone because of the fact that I like them so much. Um, so things like uh, polarized thinking, when you have an all or nothing or black and white thinking pattern, you desire to be perfect or you're a complete failure. Okay, so... I have a flaw, therefore I'm a complete failure. But common, common way that our mind distorts uh, reality. Mental filtering, negative mental filtering focuses on negatives of a situation and filters out positives. Negative details are magnif magnified, uh, disqualifying the positive, acknowledge positives, but refuses to accept it, finds excuses to turn them into negatives. Okay? Ever done that? Where every good sign that something is good becomes to you a sign that something is bad? Like uh, Anna pointed this out to me one time when I came to Crossway from Wisconsin. And we were talking about how the church that I left would do after I left and how I would feel about different things. And we, we got to the realization that if the church failed miserably after I left, I'd feel real bad because I didn't set them up for success. I left them and it failed miserably. If the church succeeded wonderfully after I left, I would feel real bad because I was the problem. And when you replaced me, everything got better. And there was, it was, I put myself in a no-win situation. Now, the actual righteous place to be is God does what God will. I will do what I can do to the best of my ability and trust him with the rest. But I could just, I'm pretty, I'm very creative at finding ways to be negative. And so I, uh, that mental filtering, overgeneralization, focuses on a single event and makes a conclusion based on a single piece of negative evidence and correctly concludes all similar events going forward will result in the same negative response, right? Well, this happened once, therefore it will happen one time. We see that in the divorce one, right? I got divorced last time, my husband last time, uh, came home late from work pretty regularly, my husband just came home late from work, therefore I'm about to get divorced. And so I won't go through all of the uh, cognitive distortions. You can find them pretty simply online. I find them really helpful. They're not Bible. They are helpful. Get to the heart first. If you are truly going to help people, you can't be a life hack machine. Like, do these three simple tricks and you won't be anxious. Do these simple, three simple tricks and you'll have a healthy diet. Do these four simple tricks and this will happen. That's not actually helping people. Um, and that's true, again. Of all people, mental illness is not a category distinction. It is a spectrum distinction. And so we can move towards people and help them well. All right, any uh, comments, questions as we close out? So you mentioned this, this cognitive uh, mm -hmm. It's not necessarily helpful to be like, oh, well, this is what you're doing. Stop it. But it's helpful to recognize that and see that. Yeah, so I think it's helpful to equip someone with these are the ways you might be distorting. Can you see yourself using one of these? Rather than me being like, hey, you're doing that. That just sounds like, oh, here's another problem for you to worry about. 
in addition to the problem that we're talking about already. Let me just give you more issues. And very rarely do we do well with getting a bucket of issues to work on. Yeah. And I find that helpful because she's not like, you're doing this thing. She lets me make the decision. Yeah, that's good for that. And it's also good for just general counseling to like have them, you interpret, reframe, and see if they agree with how you reframed it. That's a good indication you're understanding them well. That's completely beside the point, but it's just a good, good line in multiple occasions. All right, well, I've enjoyed teaching this class. I hope you guys learned a lot and are equipped to now do something with it instead of enjoy that if we ever have a Crossway Trivia Night that talks about what Jeremy <laughs> thinks about mental health, you know the answers. Uh, so uh, let's do well at caring for each other. Close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can uh, have confidence in you and trust in you. I pray that you would help us today to, um, to uh, just love you well and love your people well. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.